Hello, everybody. Uh, tonight, I'd like to talk about um, the need to conform. What uh, spurred this talk was a, um, a telephone conversation I had with a, a dear friend, and um, uh, we've had a sort of a student-teacher relationship for about uh, 13 years. And she was calling me from a retreat that she was on, uh, and she wanted to uh, check in with me to see whether she, f uh, whether I felt the retreat was as off, off mark as she felt it was. And she was saying that this particular teacher uh, was uh, asking everybody to inquire into violence for the course of the week together. And uh, that she seemed very angry uh, while she was talking to people. And at one point, my friend challenged uh, this person and said, um, you know, what about your own violence? What about the violence of your anger? And the teacher um, didn't own the fact that she was angry. And she said it was her, meaning my friend's projection onto her, that she really wasn't angry at all. And so uh, my friend um, called me and said, uh, you know, Rodney, I, I feel like this is really off. I need to, I need to leave this retreat. And uh, you know the teacher, which I did. I said, and uh, would you think I'm right in wanting to, to leave? And I said, uh, absolutely. I said, do one thing. Go to the teacher. Tell the teacher why you're leaving. And see what reaction there is with the teacher. And if the teacher reacts to your leaving or gets upset by it, you know you're absolutely correct in, <laughs> in leaving. <laughs> if the teacher owns it, in humility and really looks at herself, then the, uh, in some way she's owning up to the... And so my friend went to the teacher and the te teacher got very angry at her <laughs> and said that uh, she was uh, leaving the retreat unjustly or something, I don't know. And so my friend left. Now, um, that may seem like a very simple tale until one of us uh, here in the group gets caught in that sort of power with a teacher. Some of you perhaps have, I certainly have in my own practice, where you're held accountable for your ignorance, but the teacher is not accountable for their own uh, reactions at all. And uh, it ends up by always being the student's fault or the student's problem or the student's ignorance. And uh, everything is open to question except being able to question the teacher. Now, as we look around in a circle, and I think the dynamic is important, we're all sitting here together as human beings. And as human beings, which we've talked about many times before, we all have limitations. 
Now, if Dharma practice is nothing else, it certainly is owning our sense of limitations and seeing it for what it is, just not being held or not being limited by those limitations in some way, knowing where we make mistakes, but actually willing to work on those, look at them, address them straight on with courage and honesty, and own up to them at every level, at every stage of our spiritual development, that willingness to confront and to look at it and to say, yes, I said that. Yes, I'm at fault. Yes, that's me. Yes, I did that. Very quickly, the role of teacher can become a form of manipulation. And it's actually... um, It's actually uh, mutually exploitive because the student also holds accountability for that relationship and not challenging or walking out of it. And therefore there's a kind of a mutual exploitation that goes on there uh, that really has to do with our conformity, which is the topic at hand. Now, I don't know how many of you were young uh, in the 60s, young meaning in in their 20s, like I was. Uh, But uh, it was, was, I I see that time as sort of an eruption uh, against the established cultural norms of the time. Uh, And um, actually I was watching channel something or other uh, on TV and they had a documentary of the 60s and they had Harry Reisner walking down uh, San Francisco Haight-Ashbury Street interviewing the <laughs> hippies. And uh, he, would, he, he would do his little commentary, then he would interview. And he was saying, these people don't seem to have any uh, direction. They don't have any purpose in life. There no ambition. And uh, then he would interview somebody that would echo that sentiment. Uh, but in any case, uh, it was an eruption of the uh, values of the conformity, I think. The people, were, many of us during that time, were, felt like we were held in check somehow, felt like we were in a straitjacket. And we knew that uh, what, was, uh, what, what the conditioning was in us, we couldn't live with. And so there was this sort of generational uprising. Um, but what happened was that those same set of people erupted from this set of conditions into this set of conditions. And instead of wearing suits and center, they had long hair and uh, a different set of drugs and drinks and a different uh, uh, even uh, speech, communication. And so instead of looking at the greater issue, which was the need to conform and hold ourselves rigid to certain established patterns was what they're really erupting against. They went right back, we went, we, me, we went right back into the same, out, out of one mold into another. And so the question is, you know, was there really anything revolutionary about that time? In a few people, very few actually, uh, got involved in spiritual practice. 
but the way many of those people got involved in spiritual practice was with the same sense of uh, wanting to belong. And that's where the whole Est movement, you know, Est was uh, during that time when you were, you were to get it. There's something to get, and so everybody was out to get it. Uh, and it was either enlightenment or whatever, awakening or the truth or whatever. Uh, but you got a feeling of the same set of conformity in their spiritual practices that came out of the hippie generation and then before that out of the established and more traditional values. So it's really a reinforcement of sameness. That's what we're talking about tonight. And uh, I don't know, you know, I, there's a real danger in uh, Sangha. And if I could just mention that, because uh, those of you who have met here weekly are the Sangha for each other. Uh, and uh, the, the danger in uh, practicing together uh, diligently the same practice is that uh, there begins to get a view or an opinion that other forms of practice are in some ways not as good as or are, are not as um, true or that this is a steeper path or somehow a specialness can come up around a sangha. And unless it's infused with new blood and new enthusiasm, uh, even in the course of dialoguing together, you can begin to echo each other's views and opinions and find yourself within the container of a very traditional form, traditional being what you establish, form of meditation and ideas about meditation and ideas about spiritual unfolding. And that's one of the reasons I really appreciate the fact that this group allows new people to come into it and to breed and learn from those new people and to really generate that sp uh, feeling of openness so that it's a permeable group, that it isn't a group that gets caught in its own voice and just hears the echo of its voice through each one of us as we participate in it week after week. So I uh, encourage that to, to continue. Um, I think it's so important. Because conformity stands in opposition to spiritual development. In a very uh, famous sutta by the Buddha, uh, the tribe or clan of the, Kama, the Klamas were uh, a group of people who had long established religious traditions. And uh, they came to the Buddha at one point and said to the Buddha, you know, um, somehow we feel stuck a little bit in this uh, with our, with our, um, within our traditions, with, the, with our teachers. And the Buddha said, uh, and one of the Kalama clan asked him, he said, what should we do here? You know, is this the right way to really awaken to the truth? And the Buddha said, no. He says, don't ever hold 
the truth to be what your elders have told you it was. Don't ever hold the truth to be what you have read or what you have agreed to in the group, but rather hold it internally in your own self and see if it's true, if it meets your own experience. If you can see it's true within yourself, So what is it, why is it that we, uh, as a human being, have this enormous tendency to conform? I think it's uh, especially prevalent in this society because we have very little sense of belonging in ourselves. We have very little sense of cohesiveness or a feeling of a, a unification of a culture or even of a society in general. It's everybody sort of doing their own thing out there. We even think of that as some sense or set of freedom, doing my own thing. To be free, I can do my own, follow my own desires. But if desires are nothing more than a set of established conditions that are arising in you, how much freedom is coming from your willingness to act out of your desires? So there's there's also a sense um, that I don't ever feel in the East is a, just a um, kind of an impersonal quality that the West has with each other. Uh, I wouldn't call it a lack of caring. I think that's going too far, but it's just, it's just not um, relationship uh, isn't what this society is built upon. And I think it's because when you have a society that's really um, market-driven, then you have people who are very ambitious and uh, you can't form uh, satisfying relationships and hold on to that ambition uh, with the same tenacity. Uh, And that societies that have uh, greater extended families and uh, a stronger sense of of relatives, they seem to um, cohesively meet together and form um, tighter relationships. So I, I think it's this, for me, uh, in reflecting upon it, it's just this sense of not belonging, uh, not having a real position in place and, and being able to feel like I'm at home. And so I think we uh, throw that in when, and uh, try to conform. And in our conformity, we try to find our home within a group, within a group of people. And in so doing, uh, there's value, as there's value in stand, uh, sitting around here in a sangha. The value is is the sense of uh, social relationship that I get, the the need to um, to be present and to be to feel actualized by somebody else's attention and. Uh, and just the appreciation of hearts sharing together. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and it's one of the essences of Buddhism. But then the limitation is if we go too far in that and we give away our own sense of self-direction, our own heart's needs, and go along with the group's needs for fear of being uh, alienated from the group, then I think we really need to look at how that group or whether that group is serving us spiritually or not.
I don't know, uh, you know, you read these stories about um, uh, people who uh, stand in New York City and watch somebody get beat up and not want to get involved, not want to take a stand uh, because they, uh, they, uh, they'd rather be uh, anonymous in that than to rush in and, and do something. I remember one time I was um, with a friend uh, and uh, we were walking down this alley and uh, we came upon these two men who were fighting, brutally fighting. And one had the other uh, and was just uh, really beating the other. And um, I just uh, spontaneously ran at these and grabbed the man that was beating him and just uh, held him and uh, struggled with him, but just holding him. And, uh, and then the crowd that was uh, sort of watching it from the distance came around and the other man went off, uh, practically carried off. And, uh, and then I, I got, got up and my friend, and then we started going, walking home with my friend and he said, God, Roddy, why did you do that? He said, uh, you really could have been hurt. And um, it wasn't, uh, I said, well, how could you not have done it? I mean, it's not like you think, well, I can't get involved in this because I might get hurt. You don't, it's not that kind of reflection. It doesn't require that kind of consideration. It's just you can't watch somebody else getting beaten. Your, your heart just doesn't, you just can't watch somebody do that. And, uh, and so I, I don't know what, I, I can't really uh, connect with what it would be like to be in a group of people watching, watching somebody get raped or get beaten and not act upon that. That, that seems so extreme to me. I'm not sure what's going on in people, except there's kind of a um, a disassociation from the event and a and a and a lack of taking responsibility. We just say, well, I don't have to get involved. You know, nobody else is getting involved. They're all standing around watching them too. But that's really the sense of lack of belonging. There's no belonging there. There's no belonging on Earth. If you can watch somebody else getting brutally beating, beaten, there's no belonging. You're not on this Earth. You're, there's no relationship. And I think it's, it's a symptom. And at the same time, there's an enormous sense of conformity in that predicament because nobody else is doing it. I don't have to do it either. See how we fight against the heart when we conform. We fight against the very thing we want to do, which is to belong. And we move against the belonging and our willingness not to get involved. I'd like you to ask Suze to read this. Um, I forgot my glasses tonight. But I, I want her to read this. Uh, Under the guise of an experiment in learning, Milgram induced a group of volunteer teachers to administer escalating electrical shocks to learners who gave wrong answers on a word test. Actually, the shocks were faked, and the learners were actors instructed to register the appropriate signs of agony as the jolts increased. But the teachers were not in on the hoax. Although some were plainly distressed at what they were doing, 
an astonishing 65%, 26 of the 40 teachers, administered the shocks up to the lethal level of 450 volts. Do you want me to finish this little yeah, part? Yeah. To Milgram, that seemed proof of how ordinary people, by yielding their sense of responsibility to an authority figure, could be made to perform monstrous acts. These are people off the street. This is you and I. So let's not say, oh, how could they have done that? How could we have done that? Whereas somebody standing beside the person and they're administering shocks and you hear this screaming coming from the other room. You can't see it. You're behind the blind. And the man, and you're saying, well, I don't know if I should go any higher or not. And he said, oh, yes, go on. It's okay. It's gone. And you see the, the caliber where it turns red into the lethal dose. And you just keep going on because somebody there is telling you that it's the right thing to do. This willingness not to stake a stand, not to stand up, not to say no, is within 60% of us. So the power of this conformity issue is enormous. But even if we satisfy our heart's need to be involved and establish a relationship and feel belonging and not to conform externally, there is still an enormous need to conform to our internal world. And this is the external conformity pales by comparison to the power of the internal conformity. And that's what we carry with us every single day, which leads to the outer. And that's our looking at situations in the same way that we always have in the past. Approaching everything from with an opinion with our own past description of how we've been and how we've always done it and how we always will do it. All the way along the line. It's how we approach our best friend. It's how we approach our spouse. It's how we approach this group. It's the things that we bring in, what we're used to, what's easy for us, how easily we fit into that groove where we can just do and offer and just be the way we've always been. In the meditation, I was reflecting upon this as we were sitting, the meditation is really the beginning to put distance, putting a gap between what the history of our lives have been and what the future will be. And that gap is, of course, that moment of freedom where we just sit and we just allow the mind to move without acting upon that movement. We just allow it to turn. It just falls off the cliff. It just rolls on like the river. And we're not 
carried away in the stream of events. And the amount of incredible amount of energy it takes not to fall back into that stream and we find ourselves, if we're honest, maybe five or ten minutes down that stream getting back out again, standing on the shore and watching it move and then finding ourselves plunged in it, carried away for another five or ten minutes until we can finally get back on the shore and reestablish our position. Now, that's when we take up a 45-minute form in which we are to do nothing else but stand and watch the stream. What's it like for the rest of our lives all day long when we don't have that context where we're sitting in a formal posture and we're involved actively in the world. If we get lost and dip in and find ourselves five or ten minutes later in the course of our sitting meditation, think how frequently it happens in the course of our daily lives. And that is the power of the need to conform the habits and the pressures of conformity within us as we try to reinstate some sense of clarity and freedom within that conformity, through that conformity, not by eliminating it, by taking up a different reference point to it, by taking up a different posture, a different dimension. You can't fight it. The momentum is there, but you can stop. You can just not be involved in it. Totally clear in the middle of it, but not to be carried away by it. And that's the power of the meditation. That's the power of what we're doing here. When we are stopping by that riverside, we are the other 40% that says no to that shock therapy, to that lethal dose. But very quickly our meditation can become an expression of that conformity itself unless we challenge, challenge everything we see. And that's why in this particular group and in Vipassana in general, we don't set a teacher up to be someone who knows and we don't. For that's that's being an infant. We challenge everybody, all of us, in the circle. Well, what about this? What about that? And that's the value of the investigation, of wanting to say, okay, let me look at this life. Let me look at this. I've lived my whole life with people telling me that I'm supposed to be moving to the top, working my way up. Let me look at that. What does that do? Is there happiness in that? I was reading tonight in the paper about some guy who drove a Brinks truck or something and stole uh, $23 million. And he planned it for five years. Right? So five years, he steals this money. Now I thought, well, what did he get out of it? He can't, his faith is all over the newspaper, so he can't show himself to anybody. <laughs> God knows where he is. He's hiding out somewhere. He's got $23 million. What, what good is it? You know, unless you, unless we see what we're doing and where we, I mean, what, if I have to live 
in the cellar of my house and call out for pizza every night because I don't want anybody to see me. <laughs> I'm sure glad I have a lot of money. <laughs> but you see the desire to conform is in is um, instigated by our self-doubt because we doubt ourselves we don't feel like that we have the truth in us we feel like the truth is out there in you or in the group and if I don't know how many people here but if 24 of you go this way and I think well that's the way isn't that the way but if 24 of you are going that way you see it's like my friend who called me up and said Rodney you know I just need you to tell me <laughs> what I already know I already know it she already knew it but it's too hard because we doubt ourselves we don't believe that I could have the truth when everybody else is going the other way now put this group in greater society. We've got 24 versus what? 250 million. They're all going one way. Who are you? Who are any of you to say that that isn't the right way to go? How can you say that? Now you could say it as a group and go that way and never think for yourself and that's called an occult. Or you can think for yourself and that you don't have to dismiss it and say it's, it's worthless for anyone. That's going too far. You see? That's just a reaction. But you can say it's not right for me. This isn't right for me. It's not right for me just to go along here. It's not right. It's not right for me just to keep going up and up this ladder of success. Or to try to live my life like my neighbor's lives. Or anything. Or anything. And what we find ourselves doing when we find ourselves isolated like that is judging. Judging. But see, judging is just more conformity. Judgment comes out of conformity. Why would I judge? It's just not right for me. When it's not right for me, it's not right for me. I can put it down. I don't have to belittle you or make you less than me in order for me to be right. That's again my self-doubt that's operating there. That's my emotional Im immaturity. I can just let you have your life. You see how Buddha, Buddhism leaves you alone. That's this enormous sense of um, reverence to that. I just leave you alone. I leave you alone to do with your life what you will. Because I trust the same potential, the same ingredients are in you as in me. Whether you tune to them or not, that's an individual. But everyone universally has it. So I just, I trust that. I trust the process of the life experience eventually 
over eons taking a person to that heart. But I'm not going to doubt my heart's way because I see you operating against yours. I'm not going to do that. So it's not a radical reaction like we're better than you or I'm better than you. It's not a cliquish kind of groupishness at all. It's leaving the person alone. It's giving that reverence of life to that person and you just walking the other way. And therefore there's no judgment, there's no intolerance to that. It's just seeing. Understanding, seeing, seeing what is true. This isn't true for me. End of story. Really, Dharma practice is coming to a deeper and deeper sense of that inward trust. And even this woman who had been practicing for a number of years, 13 years, from time to time, you need to look into other people's lives to eyes, to to reflect back your own sense of trust. And that's what the Sangha is. That's the value, you see. Everybody critically looking, investigating, not obnoxiously, not I'm against any authority, not that one, but with reverence with that other person. Moving in and out and questioning and looking and seeing how it is for me and throwing that out into the group and to see how people participate in that and, and looking and when you hear this and you get well maybe I'm not looking I'm seeing it for yourself again on and on and on always reflecting back and looking back back to my own sense of understanding my own sense of clarity and using the group to grow like that is relationship because when you grant somebody else reverence you are in relationship When you allow someone to be who they are without trying to manipulate or distort or change them, you are in relationship. True relationship. And so when you meet here week after week, don't let go of that willingness to challenge, to ask, to investigate, to see and remember the 60%. These are 60% of your neighbors who would give a lethal dose because somebody told them to. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.